our scripture today is Psalm 32, 1 through 11, and we have a video that will present that. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, where it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All right, good morning, guys. All right. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want you to start out awake. Um, that's always a good way to start. I, I am Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead and um, just got back actually not too long ago from literally traveling to the other side of the globe, was in Kyrgyzstan for a while, um, and it was a pretty exciting trip. And there were some very, very cool things about what I saw, what I, what I learned, um, and um, honestly, how it impacts my understanding of what it means for us to be a community who is walking in Christ as a community on mission. And so um, I want to invite you. I've had a lot of conversations. People have been, hey, how did it go? What did you learn? What was... And um, I've had a lot of good conversations, but it's impossible for me to have hundreds of those conversations. So I'm actually going to invite you out a week from Tuesday, and we're going to just have an evening where I kind of unpack the trip a little bit and share with you some of the, the most vital lessons that I'm taking away from it. Um, and, and stuff that I think is going to encourage us and impact um, our mission locally. And so it is a week from this Tuesday. It is October the 8th at 6.30. And um, that week, um, those of you who are in our, our Trailhead community groups, I'm going to be encouraging you guys to just use that as, as the meeting for the week of your community group. Uh, I know for those of you who meet on other nights, that may be challenging. I'll let you guys work that out. We're not making it you know, law, um, but it is um, a great way for us just to gather to kind of hear about um, some of the things that I think God's um, showing us um, and, and will lead us in. So that's, uh, again, a week from Tuesday here, 6.30, um, to go over and, and talk a little bit about what God's doing in Kyrgyzstan. All right, second thing I wanted to highlight is that you have an opportunity right now to join, jump in with us and join us in the membership process. If you've been here for more than two weeks and you consider Trailhead Home, I'm going to invite you to join. Um, joining the membership process, I just want to kind of make this clear, does not mean that you're absolutely committed to becoming a member. 
What it means is that you want to move that direction. You want to discover more. You have opportunities along the way to say, I'm just not ready. Um, or as you find out more about us, you may be like, uh, you're not for me. Um, as we find out more about you, we may say you're not for us. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's a, a process where we just want to let you know who we are, what we believe, what makes us tick, and, and find out if God's leading you to become part of our family. We take membership very seriously here. Membership is, is our way of basically saying that we're covenanting together as a, as a family, and, and the leadership of the church is saying we're going to care for you and know you in a unique way, and, and you're committing yourself to the body, to, to the family, and saying, I'm, I'm here. I want to be part of what God's doing um, in Trailhead. Uh, and so if you want to jump in, you still have an opportunity. The window's going to be closing pretty soon because obviously there are some time-sensitive things. If you want to jump in, you want to find out more information, just hit connection point after the service. Okay, it's right out here in the lobby. They will help you um, figure out what you need to do to jump into the process. There's still time. Uh, they'll also explain the, uh, the time frame and all the rest of that. Okay, so I wanted to encourage you. Um, if you've been around for a while and you're like, Trailhead is home to me, uh, there's no excuse. Jump in. Join us in membership, Okay. Um, if you're new here and you think this may be the place for you, jump in as well because it's a great way to find out who we are, even if in the end you decide that it may not be a perfect fit for you, all right? Okay, today we are continuing our series called Deep Rest, and we are going to be looking at um, the issue of repentance and how repentance is a gift from God that allows us to move into the freedom of rest, um, and, and, and to do that, we're going to be getting to what I call, well, not on me, but um, I have been taught uh, four liberating truths. This is a material that um, I first came across with Tim Chester. He wrote a great book, How People Change. I've heard it um, taught numerous times, and it has literally um, changed my life. I think you can say, I mean, my experience of being a Christian, my experience of following Jesus, this stuff is, is powerful. And so I'm excited to unpack that with you this morning. Um, and so we're going to be getting into that because I believe these liberating truths ultimately can free us to move into real, deep rest, which we all need. All right, in order to get this thing started, let me ask you a question. If you were to lie, not that you would, Right? I know you wouldn't. We're, we're all good Christian people who go to church. We're not, we don't do that, right? But, but if, if, if you were to lie, why would you do it? What would motivate you to lie? Now, if you're a sinner like me, maybe you can just think back to the last time you lied and then ask yourself, why did I do that? Why in that situation did I deceive someone I loved or someone I respected or somebody who had power? Why did I do it? Mull that over a little bit. I'm not going to ask you to discuss it with your neighbor. We're not going to go there, but um, I do want you to keep that rattling around in your head. We're going to come back to it, okay? In this series, we are working from a, a pretty simple premise, and that premise is this, that deep rest, the kind of rest we desperately need, flows from a vital, life-giving relationship with God. Deep rest, the kind of rest we all need, flows from a vital, life-giving relationship with God. Now, so far, 
in this series, we've unpacked a number of ideas that, that have been definitely connected, but maybe the connection has seemed a little bit strained, or maybe you've had our time putting it together in your head. And so I'm actually going to connect some dots this morning before we get into our text and, and just kind of draw a line to show how, how these ideas are moving in a specific trajectory, okay? We are coming to the idea of rest with a lot of misconception. We, we often think that rest comes from ceasing an activity, right? So if I were to ask you, man, you, you look ragged, you look tired, what's the solution? A lot of you are going to say, I need a vacation, right? Now, you might need a vacation from different things. Maybe you need a vacation from your work and the deadlines and the forms and the annoying people. Maybe you need a vacation from um, a particularly annoying person who is just wearing you down at work or at school or in your extended family, maybe even in your own home, right? Some of you are like, I need a vacation from my kids, right? I have leeches and they are sucking the life out of me, right? They're beautiful, wonderful little angels, right? But they turn into little demons and they can suck the life out of you. We know that, right? Maybe it's your spouse, you know? Sometimes the closest, most intimate relationships are often the most difficult and most draining. So it's like, I need a break. I need a rest. I need a vacation. I need a day off. I need to get away from my job or my work or my school or my, I just need a break. What you need to hear is that the break won't give you what you need. The kind of tired you are, honestly, can only be fixed by God coming in and fixing it. See, what ends up happening is we get the breaks, don't we? And they don't fix it. You get the vacation from work. You get a night away from the kids. You figure out how to avoid the annoying person. And in fact, let's say you got everything you wanted. Let's say you got the vacations, maybe even a permanent vacation. Maybe you got a, someone to watch your kids eight hours every day, right? Like you get all the break you can stand. You're going to end up an incredibly well-rested, restless person. You're going to get the rest, but your soul is not going to find its peace. And you know this to be true because you've tasted it. You've experienced it in small ways where you thought you were, man, if I could just get this thing and you got it, and it didn't fix the problem. It might have helped a little bit, right? I'm not saying the vacations aren't good. I'm not saying that breaks aren't important. I'm not saying a day off isn't vital because it is. It's biblical. We'll talk about that. What I'm saying though is we need something much deeper and much more real for that to come because all true rest begins with spiritual rest. You want physical rest. You want emotional rest. You want psychological rest. It has to begin with spiritual rest because we are spiritual beings. We are created by God in His image, and our deepest need is to rest in our spirits. And we can find that kind of rest, it flows over into all the rest. There's a peace, a wholeness, a contentment, a purpose, a joy that floods out of that into the rest of our lives. That's what we need, right? We need deep rest, the kind of rest that only God can give. And and that only comes from a vital, life-giving relationship with God. So to wire a few ideas together from the last couple of weeks, first of all, is this. We were wired to delight in our relationship with God. That's how we were created. We were created 
to rest in our relationship with God. We see that in the creation itself. We see it reflected in how God created us, how He modeled it in creation, and how He commanded it. Right? God commands that we take a Sabbath rest, a day off. He commands that we find our ultimate rest in Him. But that command is not absent, like it's not just a, a random command. It's actually designed to highlight the way we're wired. In creation, God designed us to find our rest in His delight of us. And we see that in the way He created. When God created, He created for six days at the end of each day, right? What did He do? At the end of each day, He stood back, looked at it, and said, it is good, which is a statement of delight. What He's saying is, I have created something, and I delight in it because it reflects something delightful about me, God, the source of all that is delightful. He gets to day six where He creates mankind, the stewards of all creation, and he sits back and he says, it is good. Behold, it is very good. In fact, it's so good, I'm going to take a day off just to enjoy it. I'm going to take the next day and just sit delighting in it. See, he models for us. He didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he needed a day off. He didn't rest because he needed a vacation. He rested because he was, he was delighting in what he created, and then he was inviting what he created into that delight. That Sabbath day rest was not about ceasing activity. That Sabbath day rest was about delighting in the God who was delighting in them. You guys, we were wired to rest. It's wired into our very makeup. Some of you are exhausted because you think you're exempt from the way God created you. You think you can just keep running and running and running and producing and producing and producing and going and going and going, and you're frying your circuits. That's how I was. We were wired to rest in our relationship with God. So in Genesis, the end of Genesis 1 and 2, it's a beautiful picture. Adam and Eve, man, when they were working, they were resting in their relationship with God. When they were taking their day off, they were resting in their relationship with God. When they were Loving each other, they were resting in their relationship with God. It was all good, right? It was all delight because it all reflected the glory and the goodness of God. There was a rest, a delight, a joy that permeated the entire created order, and that was beautiful until Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, everything goes wrong, right? (laughs) Not because God created anything wrong, but because He gave mankind free will, and in that free will, mankind decided He would rebel against God. God, man looked to God and said, you will no longer be the center of our universe. We will be the center of our universe. You will no longer be God. We will be equal to God. Our glory will now be the center. Our will will now be important. Um, our purpose will be um, the most vital. And so what ended up happening is because we rejected relationship with God, we now seek delight in everything that isn't God, right? We were still created to seek delight. We were wired to find delight. The problem was when we rebelled against God, we cut ourselves off from the source of life, right? We see that like that powerful imagery in the story itself when when God takes Adam and Eve out of the garden, the place of intimacy, joy of, of culture with God, places them out of the garden and puts an angel at the gate saying, you can't come back in. You have now disqualified yourself from relationship with me. You have now sinned and become less than holy, and and in that place of sin, you are now separate from me. 
My presence is no longer inviting to you. My presence is now threatening to you. Not because God is in any way evil, but because He is so pure and so holy, He consumes all that isn't. And in His grace, He created a buffer zone between His glory and mankind that He might not destroy them immediately. The problem was Adam and Eve continued to be wired for delight. They had that inner need for a life-giving relationship with God that they no longer had. So what did they do with that need? They turned it to everything that wasn't God. They looked to the gifts of God to be God. They looked to the creation to meet the need that only the Creator can meet. Dan unpacked that idea last week. Um, very well when he looked at the hard idols. And, and that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is when we look to something that isn't God to be God for us. We look to something that isn't God to do for us, what only God can do. And we take good things like achievement or love and we turn them into ultimate things where that achievement now is supposed to meet my deepest need. That love is now supposed to meet my deepest need. We take good things and we turn them into God things, and in doing so, we turn them into evil things, to quote Mark Driscoll. So so we have become idolaters. We have become those who, who look to things that aren't God to meet our deep need for God. And we would have been hopeless in that state. It would have been um, a miserable, miserable state, um, except for the grace of God. While God kicked us out of the garden and we could never scale the wall, He did. He climbed out of the garden and became one of us. God took on flesh. Jesus was born. A perfect man, sinless man who lived the life we should have lived and ultimately died the death we deserved to die in our place for our sin as our substitute, fully satisfying God in regard to our sin, our rebellion. And when He rose again from the dead, it proved that God was satisfied in His justice regarding our sin. And in grace, He invites us into not our record, but His, to stand not in what we've done, but what He's done for us. And the result is this, that rest now for us as followers of Christ results from once again delighting in a right relationship with God. The challenge is our delighters have been bent. That piece of us that so wants to delight in something that is infinitely delightful has been bent by our idolatry. And it's incredibly hard to bend them back. In fact, impossible without the grace of God continuing to free us from our idols to the glory of God. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit this morning about how we unbend our delighters, how we go through what biblically is called repentance. It's a gift from God that allows us to move into the freedom of once again being what He has declared us to be because of the work of Christ. Now, here's the irony, you guys. This is what I want you to catch. You can't get rest by chasing rest. You, you can't say, man, I'm tired, I need rest, I'm going to pursue rest. It doesn't work that way. You won't get it. It's like marriage, you guys. Think about it this way. In marriage, happiness is a horrible goal. Because if you make happiness in marriage your goal, 
you will not be happy. And in fact, you'll ruin the very happiness you have because you'll continually be focused on, man, I'm not happy enough. Why am I not happy enough? What are you doing that's not making me happy? Happiness isn't the goal. Happiness is the byproduct. See, in a good relationship, in a good marriage, you don't pursue happiness. What do you pursue? You pursue trust. You pursue communication. You pursue service. You pursue a common purpose. You pursue the things that build a vital and healthy relationship. And the byproduct is happiness. You catch that? If you, if you pursue happiness, you'll miss it. But if you pursue the things that make a vital relationship, happiness is the byproduct of building a healthy relationship. It's the same way with rest. Rest is a byproduct of pursuing God. You don't get rest by chasing rest. You get rest by chasing God. In fact, biblically, um, this whole process is compared to us being branches. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now be fruitful. In in, um, Galatians chapter 5, Paul to the Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit or being in a relationship with God through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All the character qualities that describe a rested life, right? I mean, if those things are vital, active, and alive in your life, you are going to be rested and energized. But they're fruit. Now think about this. I'm going to personify a branch for a little bit, which is a little bit silly. But if you are a branch, how would you produce fruit? Would you produce fruit by looking out at the tips of your branches and saying, fruit, fruit, right? Apples. It doesn't work that way. (laughs) How does a branch produce fruit? By staying connected to the vine. A branch that stays connected to the vine will produce fruit. The important thing is not the tips of the branches where the fruit's produced. The important thing is the connection between the branch and the vine. The illustration that the Bible is giving us then is this, that the most important thing about our experience is not our experience, but our relationship with God. If you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, if you want a rested, refreshed, energized, empowered life, it doesn't come from chasing it. It comes from chasing God. As we build our relationship with God, the byproduct is the kind of life we want to live. And that's why we need to get good at repentance. Because our wanters are bent. Our wanters are broken. Our desire mechanism points the wrong way. Now, a word about repentance. Repentance is one of those words that um, kind of gets a bad rap, with good reason, because it's, it's used like as a club by religious people to make people get in line, right? I, I picture those dudes like standing out with the big picket signs, and they look like they were baptized in lemon juice, and they're like, be like me or go to hell, right? That's kind of the message. Repent or perish. And what they mean by that is, is come join us, pick up a sign and look like me, right? That's not, a, not an incredibly inviting uh, uh, image, right? Repentance um, really does feel more like a hammer, 
But what I want you to see is that biblically, repentance, it can act like a hammer. I'm not going to say it doesn't. Sometimes it kind of hurts. Sometimes it hurts a lot. But it is a beautiful gift from God. Repentance is beautiful because it is actually God's invitation to change, to free us from the things that are enslaving us to the things that delight us. So here's the thing. Our idols... Those things that we turn to to be God for us, um, they're killing us. They rob us of energy. They rob us of joy. They rob us of everything that makes life worth living. But we're so blind to it, we keep chasing them. We keep investing in them. We keep protecting them. We keep fostering them. We keep growing them. Repentance is God's gift that comes in that allows us to see the truth repent, which is to reject the lie that's enslaving us, and to move into new behavior. It's an incredible gift, and it comes at a tremendous cost. One of the reasons I call repentance as a gift is that, is that repentance always comes with a cost, right? For us to be given the opportunity of repentance means God has to provide a way for us to be forgiven. What price did God pay that we might be forgiven? He paid the price of His Son. And in that price, He secured the right to offer us the ability to repent. We can turn away from these lies that enslave us and be freed from the sin that destroys us because Jesus was destroyed for our sin. Because He died for me, I can be made alive with Him. Repentance is a gift that comes at a very dear price, in fact, more dear than we know. And repentance is ultimately rooted not in our behavior, but in our minds. The Greek word for repentance is metanoeo, which literally means a change of the mind. Often when we think of repentance, we simply think of stopping one behavior and starting another. So I will repent, which means I will stop doing this bad thing, right? And maybe I'll start doing this good thing, but at least I'll stop doing the bad thing. That's repentance. That's not repentance. And most of you know that doesn't work. You've tried it. Repentance has to do with rejecting and outrooting, rooting up the lie that is controlling your behavior. It's a change of the mind where you see the truth and reject the lie. And in seeing the truth, it enables you to reapproach your behavior. It changes your choices. It changes your behavior because now you're actually motivated from a very different place. So it always manifests itself in the behavior, but that's a secondary cause. The primary is the freedom that comes from us embracing and being freed into truth. That's a spiritual activity that requires the Spirit of God, which is why we should pray for repentance. We need the Spirit of God to enlighten our eyes, our hearts to truth, that we might walk in the freedom of that truth in a way that previously we were unable because we were enslaved to lies. So I want to unpack this as we kind of wrap this up in kind of a a lesson, okay? Last week, Dan looked at the four heart idols that control our behavior. I'm going to review those as we go through this. Don't worry. Uh, If you weren't here, you're not going to be lost. Um, But I want to show you how repentance works. So let's go back to our question. If you were to lie, why would you lie? Nobody's volunteering. That's all right. It was rhetorical. Um, But hopefully you have an idea of why you did. 
I would guess it comes from one of four reasons. It's either because you didn't want to lose somebody's approval, so you lied to somebody you love because you didn't want them thinking less of you, which is really ironic because when they find out, they're going to think even less. But in the moment, you just can't stand the thought that they might think less of you or somebody in power might think less of you or somebody you respect or, you know, you're just so afraid of disappointing somebody that you're willing to lie to them, right, because you need their approval. That's a hard idol of approval, right? I'm guessing that for some of you, it's not approval, it's control. You lied because you can't stand the idea of loose ends, and if you were to tell the truth, things would spiral out of control. Things would, people would, might make choices that were no longer in the circle of your influence. People that are driven by control want to keep things tightly wound. They want to keep things in order. They want to reduce variables. And if they need to lie to reduce those variables, often they are happy to do so. For you, that may not be it. It may be an issue of success. You may be looking at it saying, I don't really care if you like me, but I want to win. And my desire to win is so strong, I'm willing to lie, misrepresent myself, my record, who I am, what I've done, so that I can keep momentum winning. I'm willing to, I want to succeed so much. I'm willing to lie because if I don't lie, it might get in the way. It might threaten my ability to succeed. That's a hard idol of success. For some of you, it's a real simple urge. You just don't want to be made uncomfortable. You don't want things to make you uncomfortable. You know, if you don't lie, you might have to do more work. If you don't lie, somebody might kind of get in the way of how you've set up your life with beanbags and comfortable spaces and distractions, right? So you're driven by this need for comfort. And anything that might threaten your desire for comfort becomes threatening to you and you're willing to lie to protect your experience of comfort. Those are four hard idols. What I want you to see is this. The sinful behavior is lying, right? But that sinful behavior is motivated by four very different hard idols, right? We we call those surface idols and source idols. And the problem with repentance is a lot of times all we're doing is shuffling the surface idols. Oh, lying is bad, so I'll confess it and I'll repent of that. But I might go to some other behavior that continues to feed the same source idol as opposed to actually ripping the idol out. True repentance doesn't begin at the surface. It begins at the source. True repentance is about bringing to bear the power of the gospel on our hearts to change our heart's values that results in a different set of behaviors. So what I want to do is just very quickly at the end here, give you four liberating truths that have the power to uproot our heart idols that will actually enable us to move into repentance. And what I want you to do is open up your Bibles and flip to page 524. We read Psalm 32, which is a beautiful psalm. That's not what I'm preaching out of. Um, So go back and read it, Psalm 32. It's It's a beautiful psalm of David exploring the experience of repentance and how God brought him to repentance. And um, it's, for me, it's actually been one of the more powerful psalms in the Bible that's just helped me identify the hand of God and, and the work of God in my life. We're going to Psalm 145, because as I was just praying through this this morning, I shifted gears and decided this was going to be where we were going to sit. So take a look at Psalm 145, it's page 524, and we're going to look at four liberating truths that will free us from the heart idols that ultimately drive our behavior. This is often called the four G's because each character quality begins with a G, okay? And very simply, I'll summarize it. We're going to talk about how God is good, God is great, God is gracious, and God is glorious. 
for simple ideas that are profoundly powerful when it comes to our understanding of our own behavior, okay? So let's take a look at Psalm 145. We'll begin with verses 1 through 7. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Now, verses 4 through 7 go on and kind of extol the the beauty of the greatness of God. But let's pause there for a minute because that's our first G, the first liberating truth. God is great. In fact, the psalmist says, great is the Lord and His greatness is unsearchable. That word for unsearchable is is often translated unfathomable, right? The word fathom we use a lot of times to, to mean to understand. If I can fathom something, I can understand it. Literally, it's a, it's a form of measurement. So when you say something is unfathomable, what it means is that you went out to try to measure the depth of a river or of a sea or of an ocean. And if you were to be able to plumb the depths, measure the depths of God's greatness, you would never find the bottom. There is an infinite abyss of greatness. Now, what do we mean by greatness? It has to do, honestly, with all the character qualities that make one great, power, authority, sovereignty, control. God is infinitely great, infinitely powerful, infinitely in control. Simple idea, profoundly impacting. Because when we don't believe it, What we try to do, if we don't believe God is great, well, what do we try to do? We try to be great for Him. We try to control everything. We try to be sovereign. Think about it, though. Since God is great, I don't have to be in control. I am freed from trying to be God. Now, just think about how this impacts the idea of rest. Those of you who are driven by control, um, maybe you've even labeled it, you know, a little pet thing, like, I'm just control freak, right? You, you named your idol, right? You keep it in a little... It's just the way... You know, yes, I organize my sock drawer. It's just who I am, right? Um, control freaks, people that are driven by control can't stand loose ends. They can't stand variables. They can't stand... Why? Because those things are out of their control, and if they're out of their control, they're threatening. So what do they do? They try to minimize disruption. They schedule everything. They organize everything. And the people around them feel smothered because they're trying to control everything about them. What's the primary um, problem emotion for these folks? Anxiety. You know why? Because every once in a while they're reminded that even though they're doing everything they can to control their world, control their lives, to control the, the, keep their family safe, keep themselves safe, control their finances, control their future, they, every once in a while they're reminded they're not God. And that's a deeply upsetting revelation because then it opens the door for them to realize how little they actually control as that creates anxiety. And so in anxiety, what do they do? They just try to minimize, they minimize um, variables. Their lives become more and more restricting. They become less and less spontaneous, more and more protected because those things are too threatening. Those things are out of control. 
So what ends up happening to rest? It's destroyed by the idol. The idol comes in and replaces it with anxiety because you're ultimately trying to be what only God can be. And you're looking to something which is good, which is organization, um, structure, um, and you're trying to make it ultimate. Like if I can just control everything, then everything will eventually be right. So what does it mean to repent of this? It means to believe the truth that God is great, not you. Now, let me ask you something, those of you who are control freaks. How are you doing with your anxiety? You enjoying that piece of it? You ever, you ever try to just, you ever get sick of it and just say, I'm, I'm done with the anxiety? I am done with you. I will repent of anxiety. I will not be anxious anymore. In fact, the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. I will obey that command. I will be anxious for nothing. How are you doing with that? It doesn't work. You know why? Because that's not repentance. Repentance doesn't just look at the anxiety. It looks at the reason for the anxiety. It goes for the root cause, not the surface behavior. You want to know how to be free from anxiety? Don't fight the anxiety. Fill your vision with the God who's in control. When a small child walks into a chaotic place that could be wildly threatening, but they're holding their mom's hand or they're holding their dad's hand. They are not filled with anxiety. They're filled with joy. There's even a playfulness in their heart, even though they are surrounded by dangers. Why? Because their heart is filled with trust. They aren't in control, but they trust their mom and their dad is. What a simple a profound illustration of what it means for us to fill our vision with the God who's in control, even though we're not. The best example, by the way, of all of these, if you really want to fill your vision, is by going to the cross. You go to the cross, everything went wrong, right? The disciples are in chaos. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He was supposed to be the king, riding on the back of a donkey, bringing deliverance to the city. And instead, he is betrayed in the middle of the night, delivered over into the hands of sinners. He is lied about and he is crucified. All hell breaks loose. Where's the control of God? Where's the greatness of God in that? Well, the greatness of God is that nobody saw the purpose of what was going on. Nobody saw where that was going, but God did. God never lost control. He had a purpose for that suffering. He had a place for those events. And all of that fit together to ultimately tell a better story than any one of those disciples would have told for themselves. God never lost control, even though they did. If God could control that kind of cosmic chaos... Do you think He can handle your commute to work? Do you think He can protect your children? Do you think He can provide for you even when the market goes crazy? Fill your vision with the God who is great and it will free your heart to rest in His greatness. Second liberating truth, God is gracious. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He made. Second G, God is gracious. It says specifically that He is gracious and rich in mercy. Think about those two words. Grace means giving something that is undeserved. He is a God of grace. 
He is continually giving what you do not deserve. He is pouring himself out to you, even though there is nothing in you that deserves the outpouring of that love. He gave you, Jesus, the greatest gift while you were still an enemy, while you were still in your sin. How will he not with Jesus also give you everything? God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of mercy. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. And he extends mercy to us because he took what we deserved and he gave it to Jesus. And Jesus suffered in our place that we might be forgiven. God is gracious. And because God is gracious, I don't need to live for other people's approval. I stand in God's grace. Not because I've earned it, but because Jesus earned it for me. How much does God love you? If you're a follower of Christ, as much as He loves Jesus. There's nothing you can do that will make Him love you more. There's nothing you can do that will make Him love you less. Because you have His infinite delight. Not because you earned it, but because Christ earned it for you. Because God is gracious, I don't need to live for other people's approval. See, when we're living for other people's approval, we're constantly looking for them to affirm our well-being. We're constantly looking for them to affirm our value and our worth. We're walking around looking for people to tell us that we're okay, that we're wonderful, handsome, smart, that we're capable. You know you're driven by this idol. If you go through the day and 15 people tell you how great you look and one person just looks at you weird. They don't say anything bad about you. They just look at you weird and you fill it in like, oh, what's wrong with me? Why don't they like me? Right? You ever had one of those cases where you can't stop thinking about the one person who didn't give you approval even though there were a hundred who did? That's your approval idol fixating on the one place because you need people's approval so desperately to feel good about yourself. You go to the one person who won't give it to you and you basically make them God in your life. And you say to them, you have the power to make me feel good about myself or to feel horrible about myself. Won't you please, please, please make me feel good about myself? See what the approval idol does to us? It robs us of rest because it continually puts our well-being in the hands of others. (laughs) And they're sinners. (laughs) It's not a safe place to put your well-being. And it's never safe. And so we're constantly driven. People that are driven by approval... um, ultimately are um, going to exhaust the people around them. They will exhaust them because they're constantly looking for their approval and they can never get enough. And so they're always looking for more and more and more and more affirmation. Um, Their lives tend to become a stage where they're acting out an internal play that will ultimately make them look good, make people love them. It's exhausting. Every time you step out, you're thinking, how am I being looked? How am I being perceived? What are people thinking about me? How does I... You're just constantly driven to perform. That's exhausting. And you're plagued by fear that somebody won't give you the approval you desperately need. How do you get free from this? Do you just decide, I will no longer live for the approval of people? Is that possible? 
You guys are following. Hopefully, you get the, the gist by now. No, you, you can't just choose to reject the surface problem. You have to go to the source idol. And what you have to do is instead fill your vision with the God who graciously approves of you. If God says He loves you, what does it matter if somebody says they don't? If the God of the universe, the infinite measure of all that is right and good and holy, says to you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in whom my delight dwells, how can you not move out in confidence? Not pride, but humble confidence, knowing that you're broken and there's nothing in you, but you have everything because you have Christ. Third, G, <laughs> uh, starting in verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak the glory of your kingdom, and they will tell of your power, and they will make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Third, G, God is glorious. God is glorious. God is great, God is gracious, and God is glorious. See, we see God's glory in His person and in the things that He creates. So God's glory is reflected in the measure of His excellence, but also in the excellence of things He creates. And that's why we get a taste of God's glory in things that are beautiful. Sunsets, sunrises, a beautiful, a beautiful song, a beautiful play or a novel or a beautiful artwork or, or something that is designed incredibly, engineered incredibly well. We see something that reflects the glory of God in those things, and it provokes our hearts to praise because when we see glory, we're always brought to this place of wanting to sing its praise. You want to know what you find glorious in your life? Find out what you praise. Where do you pour out the offering of your praise continually? That's where you find glory. And what I'm saying is that God is infinitely glorious. There is a splendor and a strength, a level of beauty at the heart of God that is worth singing about. And since God is glorious, I don't need to prove myself. Because God is glorious, I don't have to be. It's not my job to win. My success does not define my well-being. I rest in His success. I rest in His glory. And in resting, I am freed to use God's gifts and enjoy those gifts without turning those gifts into God's. When you're driven by a success idol... You ultimately make people around you feel used because you're constantly shifting and moving to try and put yourself in the best advantage. You don't value people for who they are. You value people for what they can contribute to your well-being, your purpose, your goals, your agenda. And people will feel used, even your own family. Ultimately, life becomes one great threat or challenge that has to be overcome. And your problem, emotion, is anger. Because you're consistently frustrated that you are not winning. You are not as successful as your heart demands. And so you get ticked. If you have a quick temper or a problem with anger, I can almost guarantee you it's rooted in the fact that you do not believe that God is glorious and that you can rest in His glory. All right, final G, verses 14 through 20. The Lord upholds all that are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand 
and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Verse 19, he, fu- he fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he hears their cry and saves them. Verse 18, he satisfies the desire of every living thing. God is good. God is good. Catch this, you guys. God is the archetype, the original image of everything that is good. Everything that is satisfying, everything that is pleasurable, God created it. He is the original form. You like good food, you like good drink, you like good music, you like good entertainment, you like um, a good video game, whatever. God's the original archetype of the thing you're chasing down. The reason we know pleasure is because God himself owns pleasure. It is, Scripture says it's, it resides in His right hand. What that means is that, is that He created us for it. And all of those things He gives us, the food, the drink, the sex, the, the, the accomplishment, the, the video games, whatever it is, the experience, all of those things were meant to be appetizers, not meals, designed to point us to a greater fulfillment, greater pleasure, greater joy that we find in the heart of God. They were never meant to become gods unto themselves. They were meant to point us to the God who created them. The problem is, if I don't believe God is good, I feel like I have to defend my comfort. I have to um, barricade my life in such a way that things cannot come in and make me uncomfortable or threaten my sense of of, um, what makes me comfortable. And when you live like this, people become obstacles, right? They're servants, to fulfill your life, to protect your lifestyle. People are like things you just need to climb over or get away from because they put demands on you and they threaten your sense of of, um, comfort, whatever that is, however you define that. And what's funny is that life becomes incredibly uncomfortable for people with comfort idols. You know why? Because when you are so afraid of discomfort that you run from it continually, you become incredibly uncomfortable with the threat of discomfort. So you become fixated on the threat of discomfort. And so you're made uncomfortable by even the threat of discomfort that may or may not even come. People that are so fixated on their comfort ruin their ability to enjoy comfort. People that like, let me just give you an example. Guys that barricade themselves off from all of life and simply play video games 24-7. I am not anti-video game, okay? I enjoy a good game. I play with my kids. It's fun. But guys that just make that their life, They just live for the next release. They live for the next game. And what's interesting is that every time a new game comes out, it really is less satisfying than the one before. They're becoming bored of their own entertainment. Their ability to even be entertained is reduced. Their world is closing in on them, and it becomes suffocatingly boring. And yet they're afraid to risk it because risk is discomfort. And so they use people, they suffocate themselves, they cut themselves off from a life of purpose and motion and mission plagued by boredom. So how do we, how do we break free from this? Like, I will do hard work. I will get a job. I will stop being lazy. Those are all surface idols. How do you get to the source? You fill your vision with the fact that God is infinitely good and fulfilling, more fulfilling than the things you're chasing. 
Your desire is not bad. Your desire for comfort and joy and fulfillment is not evil. The way you're trying to fulfill it is. We need to seek ultimate goodness in the source of ultimate goodness, and that is God. And what's beautiful about that is that sometimes we'll find the greatest joy, greatest fulfillment, greatest pleasure in the most unlikely places. Because ultimately, those are gifts from God that He gives to us as we follow Him, even if it looks like we're going to have to be made uncomfortable to get to Him. So repentance, you guys, is this, not simply stopping one behavior, not simply stopping one behavior and starting another. Repentance is not something we do. It is a gift from God that frees us to experience a new kind of life. And the way we embrace repentance is to fill our vision with the God who can and does free us. Fill our vision with God who is glorious and good and great and gracious. And as we fill our vision with Him, He'll kill our idols. He'll free our souls. And our behavior will change. And our lives will change. But not from self-effort not from gritting our teeth and white-knuckling it, not from deciding I will be different. It'll change because we'll be changed by the God of change. Fill your vision with God. Connect to the vine. He'll produce the fruit. You guys, I'm going to put some uh, questions up on the screen to lead us in a time of response. I'm going to ask you to just kind of look at those and pray and let God speak to you in it. We're going to share communion in a moment. We're going to have leaders at the back available to pray with you. If there's something you want prayer for or with, we would love to come alongside you and pray with you. But let me pray for us right now. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are the infinite fulfillment of everything we desire, that that you created us for you. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And I pray, Lord, that you will wake us up as a people, as a community, as a church, to your goodness, your graciousness, your glory. That we might come into your power and the freedom that comes from having our vision filled with you. Father, I pray for my friends. There are some here that are struggling with very, very deep, painful things, addictions, patterns of behavior. I pray, Lord, that you will fill their vision with the God who resurrects the dead, that changes lives, that restores hope.